Kegler is a professor at the USC Prince School of Public Policy at the University of Southern California. He has consulted for the World Bank, UNDP, USAID and a host of other development agencies. As founding executive secretary for the Pacific Rim Council on Urban Development, he helped organise numerous international consultative forums for cities throughout the region. Ed Blakely is a former Washington insider, an internationally recognised leader in urban development and planning, advisor and author. Pacific Conversations is brought to you by Ed Blakely and 2SER. For earlier conversations in this series, make sure to check the archive wherever you find the podcast, and you can also look at the website edtalks.com.au. Well, Eric Hickler, remember those days when we were climbing the mountain in Southern California? People don't know the mountains in Southern California, but we had some good ones. And we're going to climb a mountain today, too. How are you? I'm doing very well, and it's great to talk to you again, Ed. Uh, it brings back wonderful memories. Wow. The mountain we're going to climb today is called China. And China is very, very much in the news. As a matter of fact, I'd say after the plague, uh, and China, of course, is connected with that, it's number one and number two subject for everybody. What is China doing? And you can't pick up a pencil or anything without reading Made in China. So we are making history because both of you and I were on the ground in China when China wasn't what it is today. Give me a little bit of a perspective on the evolution of China since Nixon. Well, Chinese history is so fascinating in and of itself. And uh, I think you and I have both been visiting there for decades. And so one benefit of getting, getting on in age is one has seen more of this history. And uh, China's trajectory has been truly remarkable. I'm, I, I can't imagine any other time in history where a single country has done so much to further its own development and to sort of, in a sense, pick itself up by its bootstraps, as it were, and to uh, will itself forward, uh, not without mistakes, but in a way that uh, is undeniably impressive. What are some of the components of that? Uh, what are the things you've seen impress you most? Uh, economic certainly stands out, and a lot of the rest uh, follows from that. Uh, the, um, actually, I have in the last uh, 30 years, I, I, I can take a quick look, in the last 30 years, uh, China's uh, GDP well, if we has increased by 14 fold during a period where the US economy increased, doubled. And so over 30 years, doubling is not bad in 30 years, but to- no, for an advanced economy, that's damn good. But to double and then double again, double and double again, again and almost again uh, in that same interval is, is, is truly unprecedented. So it's it's beginning to slow down a bit now, but China's growth is not just been 
quantitatively remarkable, it's been qualitatively remarkable. It's put itself into a whole new category. And then of course, when that's um, magnified by its mass, just in terms of its population, its geographical size, uh, and its, its sort of position in the world, uh, that economic growth and transformation has not only changed China itself, but it's changed China's relationship to the world, and hence it's changed the world. Now, China uh, used to send a lot of cheap stuff to cheap stores in America. It was a, kind of a bottom feeder, I would say. Uh, but now China's electronics, advanced electronics. Uh, I'm using Huawei right now. Uh, the Chinese systems are among the best in the world. How has China come so far so quickly? Uh, is they sent so many people overseas, they learned a lot and brought home, but how did they leap that far that fast? Uh, I think a key element of that is intentionality. You know, they, it, and one also has to look at sort of the institutions within China, including the governance institutions, which have some positives and some negatives, right? Uh, but one positive, certainly for, for the Chinese people themselves, for China itself, is uh, that there's, there is a kind of um, aggregate view. You know, in the United States, one of the, one of the strengths of the United States and other Western countries um, is you're in Australia now, I'm originally from Canada. One, one of our strengths is that there is this incredible diversity and there is no sort of centralized command, right? And so there's a kind of liberating aspect to that and that we as individuals or individual communities uh, are able to sort of pursue our own path forward. And that's, there's a part of that that's very stimulating and that many people, uh, ourselves included, I think, are drawn to because it's, it's an ethos of sort of self-fulfillment at a kind of individual and localized level. In the case of China, the institutions and the underlying sort of philosophy and outlook on life is much more one of this collective. And of course, having a long, 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 long history as a uh, sort of cogent and coherent civilization uh, adds weight to that, right? It's easy to take a longer run view when you're in a country uh, like China. I remember the first time I was uh, on, on the mountain that's just behind uh, the, forbidden, the Forbidden City, this is decades ago, I felt, like, I felt that the course of history was running right through my body as I stood up there, that I was in the geographical center of an actual civilization. Yes, I think I was on that with you on the wall. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, this intentionality has led to something that I've seen in the last, well, I have been to China in five years, but when I, I, I was there last, the thing I noticed was individuality was springing up. Women were wearing dresses short, uh, men had a swagger, uh, the kind of talk on the streets was sound more like New York uh, than the China I knew. Is this 
is China, as people get more wealthy, they want more choices and they start exercising those choices. Can China hold that together? Wealth also brings the notion that I can do rather than we can do. Do you feel that at all in China today? That's, that's I think, a very important observation. I think the, uh, I think the, the Chinese, in, in many ways, the Chinese strike me as very much like Americans in the sense that there's a little bit more of a front end sort of formality, right? In the way people address each other, et cetera. But very quickly, uh, once you break through that, there's a kind of frankness in exchange and a kind of can-do spirit that I think um, is common to both, to both countries, to both cultures. And so I think you're right that as this economic transformation was taking place, it was also uh, in, infiltrating or filtering through to the population at large and a lot of um, individual attitudes and the, and the way people in China would think about their place in society uh, was also transforming. But I believe there's been a fairly um, dis decided uh, pushback against that by the Communist Party itself, in particular under the leadership of Xi Jinping, uh, that uh, there's been a sense in the part of the leadership that we can't let this get out of control. And it's been pushing back across the board. And there's, uh, you mentioned five years. During these last five years, even you know, closer to 10, and it's been moving kind of, it's been turning around from the top, not necessarily from, you know, from the bottom, but I think people are being, in China are being much more careful now because there's a sense that the party is reasserting its primacy in a way that's much more definitive and explicit uh, than was the case, say, in the 90s and the early 2000s as, as the process was moving towards an opening up. That's kind of, that's been uh, turning around now, and that's had an effect on the world as well. So the, this turning around uh, with this current um, administration or government is almost like going back to Mao. Very much so. And Xi Jinping's father himself was a sort of lieutenant, you know, one of the original uh, sort of party founders. Right? And so there's, you know, his own uh, view of the role of the party and the primacy of the party and, and, and its relationship to the state uh, is, 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 I think, deeply rooted uh, in his, his own upbringing. And so, so that's, an important, that's an important part of this. So what, how's this affecting places? When you and I travel China, Beijing and Shanghai were distinctly different places. Uh, and then you go to the south of China and to Hong Kong and so on. All very different places. Is this homogenization being attempted here? I, I don't think so in that sense. You know, I, I, I think 
I, I agree with your observation. I mean, the diversity within China is very, very remarkable. And I think that endures and very much so. And also individual diversity. I think that the changes that this opening process has wrought are still there, but they're now being sort of um, limited in a sense from the top down. And that's being, that's being uh, felt. But these differences between sort of local cultures within China is very much still present. And there's also a kind of a flourishing because the, uh, there has been a great deal of exposure to Western ideas, to uh, the, the level of scholarship. When you and I first started visiting China, uh, there's no comparison between the kind of the level of scholarship that's taking place now in China and before. But again, the, the role of the party now, for example, in censorship, in terms of, um, for example, when I was thinking about trying to work with a, a publisher in China to see about having my recent book um, also published sort of in Chinese, uh, I, I encountered uh, sort of firsthand the kind of fairly heavy censorship hmm. that is imposed across academia. And of course, a lot of it ends up being self-censorship because people are very quick to figure out that you can that there are now lines that you can't cross. And so a lot of it is not so much that the party is coming in and you know taking things off the shelf, because you only need to um, sort of target a few individuals before the remainder get the message. So uh, I want to turn to that a little bit later because there are minority groups who are really being pushed out, pushed down and the like. But I don't want to talk about that now. I want to talk about something we have in common that manifests itself in the, the urban change. China has built something like 30 cities from scratch uh, that are gigantic now. Um, and uh, is this big city building movement, uh, COVID came from one of them. Is this big city building movement possible to sustain or is it dangerous because we might with more pandemics, uh, crowding people in these spaces, these huge apartment buildings and so forth. It's almost too much a transition from a farm to a gigantic 20 million person city must put a strain on the sociology, the psychology, and the physical aspects of modern living there. You're, you're right. I think that the, the change itself has been profound. I mean, when, uh, again, when China was starting to open up, it, was, it had one of the least urbanized populations in the world. It was at around 40%. Now it's already towards 60%. And that's, and China now has a much larger population than it had 40 years ago. And so the, the, the extent of urbanization is uh, surely a kind of a shock to the system, right? So uh, I think on the whole, the urbanization has been a positive thing. 
that it's, it's rightly been viewed as one of the engines to transformation, not only, uh, it's not only urbanization, but in a sense, urbanization, right? Yes. That there's, it's kind of transforming the way Chinese people live and think and work, et cetera. And so it's really a question of how that process has been managed. And I think one of the, the biggest mistakes they've made is trying to look to the US, quite frankly, as a kind of model of how urbanization might occur, you know, rather than, um, and so they've, they've, they urbanized so quickly and kind of put things in place that are now going to be difficult to try and uh, change. So for example, the way, the way cities are laid out as they've grown, they've, 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 these cities are not really sustainable environmentally is, right. is one part of it. Uh, but also, you know, um, related to that, I mean, partly economically and, and sort of socially, it's, it's very complex. Part of it is that the cities were also engines for sort of, there's a kind of uh, duality class within China where, where you have sort of people who were who were migrating from rural areas where they were underutilized in terms of economic activity and productivity. Their marginal products were very, very small in the, in the rural settings. They would move to the urban settings where their marginal products were larger. And that's one of, and that by moving people from low productivity and millions and millions and millions of people from low productivity activities to higher productivity activities, um, is one of the reasons that the economy has grown so quickly, but it's also created a kind of a dual class within, within China. So within cities, you have this kind of layer on the top that is in a sense uh, rising with, these, with this rising wealth of the country, but there's this persistent layer at the bottom that is really like migrant labor, but it's all internal migration. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's pretty ugly at times to see these workers living in little shacks and stuff, much like Southern California, where the Mexicans live in those little shacks near the hotels where they work. And people don't realize that China and the U.S. have that in common too. And there's right. quite a bit of homelessness as well in some of the major cities. Uh, let's turn to China's exporting Chinese. That is, China's big in Africa. It's big in the Pacific. It's becoming big in Latin America. What is that about? Part of it is a natural outgrowth of its size. You know, if we, we think about, look at the US, think about, you know, if, if someone were commenting that the U.S. is big in, in Africa, the, 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 the U.S. is big in South Asia, that, you know, we sort of take it for granted because the U.S. is so, such a large economy and it's so dynamic. Well, China is becoming, you know, is now the second largest economy in the world and it is dynamic and it does have an export, has had, you know, a primarily export-oriented economy. So it's, it's a fairly natural outgrowth 
to, to a certain extent that China would therefore be engaged in much of the world. But now, not, not in the way they are. They, they are building the roads. Uh, countries are incurring debt with China. Uh, China is um, basically standing over some of the Pacific Island countries because they built everything. They're telling people how to use it and how they want to be paid back. It's a, it's a lot of, um, how will I put it, um, more controlling development than the U.S. had is it's expanded into other countries. I think that that's a fair criticism. At the same time, I wouldn't discount the extent to which the U.S., you know, other countries around the world may have felt, you know, I'm Canadian originally, mm -hmm. right? There's a strong sentiment, you know, within within uh, a lot of countries, Canada being being one. It's not a it's not a universal uh, sort of sentiment, but certainly within a country like Canada, where I'm from, uh, there's this sense that well, the United States has really kind of boxed us in, right? There's only so much we can do uh, when we reach these economic agreements on auto trades and auto packs. Uh, they always it's very difficult to you know, to, to, to work with a country that's so much larger and that has a lot more levers of power. And uh, so, so I wouldn't discount the fact that we ourselves in the US uh, also have, you know, we, we might, others might not view us the way we view ourselves. And of course, there's a long literature on sort of colonialism, et cetera, the colonial legacies and these and the current um, Bretton Woods institutions that are sort of legacies. Nonetheless, I think your main point I would agree with, which is that China is yet again something else, right? And that again, partly has to do with this kind of intentionality reflecting also the fact that there is this sort of integrated um, governance model uh, that's linked around the party that is that that is this enduring thing and that all at all all pathways of power lead to the top and lead to primacy within uh, within the party and so geopolitical considerations and economic trade considerations and uh, uh, education exchange all of these things are viewed, with you know, within the Chinese party leadership as an integrated uh, sort of single uh, developmental uh, challenge and undertaking, and so uh, in some ways, the what we would think of perhaps as a criticism might also be turned around from their perspective and thinking, well, that's a sign that we're actually succeeding, right? Mm -hmm. A sign that we're actually managing to pull things together in a more coherent way for ourselves than uh, others, right? And that they might view it as a testament to the viability and the success of their own model. Well, let's turn to that model now with the Belt and Road. Yes. What is that about? Some of our listeners may not even know what it is. Tell me what it is, what it's about, and where it's going. Well, the Belt and Road Initiative is 
is really a geopolitical, uh, an expression of Ch China's geopolitical um, uh, aspirations. One thing that we, we tend to forget is that uh, China, uh, very much unlike Australia and the United States, for example, or Canada, China is surrounded. I think it connects to something I have to go back and look it up, something like 15, 16 immediate Other countries, neighbors, yes. Not all of which, and many, most of which, right, are, are would be natural allies, right? So China, there is a kind of sense in which China feels encircled and vulnerable. And uh, part of this geopolitical expression, I think, is, is a response to that. And uh, so, so looking to secure develop infrastructure that links it in sort of tangible ways, particularly sort of inland, right? It's, it, when, it, when China faces out you know, towards the Pacific region, um, there aren't a lot of what it would consider to be allies there, right? No. There are, there, it's a kind of US and friends, right? Including Australia, Japan, the, the recent the Quad. Um, so, so when China looks out in this direction, it, it feels a bit hemmed in and that's, that's kind of reinforced by just the geography of the Pacific with the, uh, with, with, with the island, um, with the island rings that mm -hmm. kind of, that kind of set up almost a kind of a natural sort of defense uh, barrier. So then feeling, looking inland, you know, it's more, more sort of porous. They're, they're worried, China has been worried about security threats. Uh, for example, in uh, Xinjiang, which of course is very problematic in so many ways, including of course a human rights perspective uh, for all of us uh, who, who observe China. Explain where Xinjiang is because people don't know the geography. Yes, Xinjiang is uh, up in the sort of Northwest of China. So it's kind of on that old Silk Road. And a lot of that is essentially a um, sort of Muslim-based population that's really kind of uh, part of its, in many ways, culturally and historically is more like part of the stands, right? So yes. all, um, all those, all those. And you really feel it when you're there. People look different. That's right. It's it, it it's. But they speak it, Chinese. It, well, their Chinese is is the official language, and it's imposed, and it's um, so the the response of China, and you know, in terms of um, uh, looking to in effect, eradicate that, um, that sort of the rising or the natural growth of a community or of a cultural community, an economic community that is different from the sort of the party line, right? Where the, it, it, it's, um, there's not a natural sort of union there. Right, mm -hmm. and um, so we you you would raise the question earlier about you know how Shanghai is different from Guangzhou is different from Beijing and all of that is true, but they're in a sense all sort of with they're different but within a sort of unifying Han culture 
uh, what we might sort of think of as traditional Chinese cultural point of view. Uh, when you get out to some of the areas like Xinjiang, uh, it's it's very different. It's a it's and again coming from Canada, right? If we think about the Quebecois population, the mm -hmm. the, the French Canadian population, and the different sort of um, uh, how what it takes to accommodate the natural aspirations of a of, of a local uh, or regional population like that, while at the same time um, conforming to a sort of a national coherency and well, how's the road help here? The which the road, the Belt and Road. Well, essentially, it's primarily infrastructure is 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 the main instrument for uh, seeking to establish kind of um, concrete ties and linkages. So the idea is that China would like to engage more directly with this part of the world and in effect be in a position to uh, provide more effective oversight of it, what, view, what it views as its own security while doing so. So it's, it's both a uh, kind of security measure and a, uh, it's a kind of political security measure and an economic uh, sort of security measure and a way to uh, channel a lot of excess uh, economic productive capacity in China to uh, our regions that have yet to develop. But the, but this ultimately, this road was been planned for about 700 years, ends up uh, uh, on the Bosporus. It doesn't stop in Asia. It's it really goes all the way to Europe. Even though there are a lot of roads in Belt and Road, and the Belt is, in a, in a, in a sense, it's it's kind of infrastructure driven. In a way, it's more fundamentally. I think it's it's one of political. Uh, it's it's one of geopolitical uh, design. And so, so is there cool. anything to the trade initiative that it brings? You bypass the Suez Canal. Yes, and again, part of this is China also looking to uh, reduce its own vulnerabilities. So, for example, looking to build uh, rail links uh, to parts of South Asia or Southeast Asia that might provide outlets. Because you know, we wouldn't want to go too far with the idea of geographic determinism. But you know, there's a reason that the Straits of Malacca have been such a content point of contention for centuries, right? That if you're moving uh, petroleum from the Middle East up into uh, Northeast Asia, you really have, there are only so many ways that you can transport that. And those ways are, are quite vulnerable to intervention. If, if, if there ever is, if there were to come a time that there would be military confrontation, um, these, these channels of, of goods movement uh, are, are really very vulnerable. So this is one of the things that China is looking to do. That's one of the reasons that, it, that it's being driven to be so aggressive in the development of these so-called islands, you know, the Spratly Islands, for example, in the South China Sea. It's China feels, 
I think, very vulnerable. And the irony is that by re responding somewhat aggressively, rather aggressively, I should say, to this feeling of vulnerability, I think it's making a lot of its neighbors, um, near neighbors and far neighbors, including the US and Australia, um, also feel uh, nervous and, and more tense in terms of relationship there, which is creating a kind of uh, negative cycle. And so this is something that uh, I think is very important for both sides to try to address because a downward spike cycle like this, no one wants to see get out of control. Now look, now Biden has done something. Uh, he finally uh, figured out that the French submarine would not do anything but sink and <laughs> offered to us an American submarine. But it's not just a submarine. There's a pact here between Australia, Japan, the US um, and the Pacific powers are coming back together. China asked to join that. Uh, is this a sincere offer or is this? Well, I think it sincerely would like to join. I, you know, it wouldn't have done this on a frivolous basis. I'm sure it's thought it out. Um, I think China's joining that group would in effect undermine the what I think many view, and I personally would agree with view as perhaps the the true subtext behind that um, sort of the original TPP, which is now being sort of renamed, etc. But I think China's looking. If China were to to join that, it would in effect undermine that original intent. The intent was to have. Uh economic bloc against China in the Pacific. If China joined it, then uh, would it uh, would China then say, we don't want any more submarines from Australia in these waters? Well, this is this is very important for how how we respond, right? That um, you know the US and others were been try quite careful in trying to say, this is not an anti-China, this is not a China blockade, right? And uh, I think that that's um, somewhat disingenuous. I think that uh, it actually makes sense. <laughs> it makes more sense when, if we think about something like TPP, makes more sense if we think about it as a means of bolstering defense against moves that China might make, right? And disruptive moves that China might make and establishing stronger alliances. These need not be sort of aggressively anti-China moves, but what I would advocate for is that it really comes down to what our values are and that, uh, that if we can articulate those values in a clear and persuasive way and say, this is an organization, this is a collection of nations that have, this is our credo, and anyone that demonstrates a genuine commitment to this same credo is welcome to join, recognizing that it would be hard, that China would be hard pressed, I think, to make that full demonstration. So uh, 
I and you think, always have to be watching your back. Right. And there are, there are, I think there are in a sense levels. We could think in terms of like concentric circles. I, in the book, in my book, I think a bit about, or I talk a fair bit about economic clubs, which is actually a, a, a part of economic theory that's been fairly well developed in recent decades. But the, the, the general idea of a club actually describe that analogy describes quite well what, what the economic theory of economic clubs is about. It's people with shared interests and characteristics uh, um, come together. We, we talk about you know, neighborhoods in the United States, right? Within a large metropolitan area like the, Los Angeles has 191 municipalities within the Southern California Association of Governments you know, region. So 191 different municipalities. So we have a sort of a history and a tradition of cultivating these kinds of clubs in the sense of Tibu. Uh, Tibu was a very prominent economist from over in, in sort of 1950s. Tibu was a Canadian, wasn't he? No, uh, but he was up at University of Washington in Seattle uh, quite a while. So he was close. Right? Yeah, yeah. Because all of us economists know Tebow and but 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 the the idea here is that uh, in a sense if we think of this collection of nations as a sort of economic club um, where it's economic and kind of broader right it's quite a, it's a club of nations that have shared values including sort of a shared sense of what constitutes free trade a shared sense of what constitutes human rights, a shared, shared sense of sort of fundamental values that are demonstrated convincingly and persuasively over the long run. There, there can be clubs, some clubs that have fairly broad membership. So having something like a WTO that casts a wide net and gets many countries in can be good for putting in a kind of a basic floor. But then there's so much diversity in terms of what those countries are all interested in and what their position is and so many well factors. let's use an analogy that many of our listeners will understand uh in football soccer there's a european league there's an english league there are various leagues some clubs are playing in england in their own game but then when they play in europe they're playing on the european platform right they're still playing football. Right. They still bring their own peculiar style. The Brazilians have a different style of football, but it's still the same game. The trouble is when somebody undermines the game, they take drugs, they do other things that allow people to game the system. And is this what you're saying? That everyone can have their own sub-league, like the National Football League, you know, there's East Coast teams and West Coast teams and so on, but we're all working together to keep a system working that plays the game in the same way. I like that analogy. The one that I use is uh, operating systems. Like we may have, you know, uh, an, a Mac-based operating system mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, Windows-based operating system. Um, or MS-DOS-based operating system, where you know, those are in a sense kind of platforms. 
um, that support activity. So you might use a word processor on one platform or another platform, uh, and they may be viable, but there may be some uh, fundamental level at which they're not compatible or which right. in fact they, there may be vulnerabilities. So I think that both analogies, uh, I think, point to the same thing. And it, it's, it's helpful to think about things like the TPP, uh, what was formerly called the TPP, in, in these kind of terms. And that letting China join some of these clubs really need to think about what is the purpose of this club. And we need to be honest with ourselves. And if it's to uh, safeguard certain kind of values that we don't think that China adheres to, then I think we should be honest with ourselves and with our electorate because, you know, one problem we've had in the U.S. from my point of view is that the general population in the U.S. is not supportive of these kinds of initiatives, which in my, my personal view is that that's a misunderstanding, that that failure to support this kind of initiative is a failure to understand what where our true interests lie, because um, it's 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 about more than you know protecting manufacturing jobs one place or another, uh, and I think that's a bit of a red herring anyway, right? That um, so so we need by being more honest with ourselves about what the purpose is of these of these kinds of partnerships, um, we can, um, I think, bolster them more effectively. So right now, we haven't been able to really uh, get broad-based support for it domestically. And In that the opens United States. The way for, right, and that opens the way- Or Australia. Exactly. And that's opening the way for China to say, well, we're willing to join, and so, uh, I think that's a good illustration of the kinds of challenges that we face. Eric, we actually went through the entire agenda. And uh, this was a wonderful talk. I uh, will have to do it more and more often, particularly in some of your new initiatives uh, with respect to informal housing and other things. Uh, but uh, you've always been a really good colleague, great mind and presented to us a way forward here. We have to start thinking about building partnerships, not making enemies. Exactly so. And it's a great pleasure to speak with you again, Ed. We, we and give your kids and your wife my best. I miss them all. I will do that. They'll be, they'll be delighted. Ed will be back with more on this series next week. Make sure to subscribe to Pacific Conversations. Maybe drop it a review if you're feeling generous wherever you find the podcast. The website is edtalks.com.au. And if you'd like some weekly news and current affairs from out of the United States, check out Ed and I's other podcast, US of Ed, also wherever you find good podcasts.